these three models, model one is where the loan goes directly to the shareholder. Model two is where you have an actual loan from the private company to an interposed entity, and from the interposed entity, another loan to a shareholder of that first private company. Model three is where the interposed entity has to be a trust, but there is no actual loan between the private company and that trust. Instead, the trust declares a distribution to the private company in the form of an unpaid present entitlement, but the cash that represents that UP, that unpaid present entitlement, is then given by the trust as a loan to the shareholder of the first company. Those are your three things that you look at to try and identify whether you have a Division 7 risk. So what we know out of these three models is that legislatively, these are the only three models that trigger Division 7A. You're listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 148 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Over the next five episodes, we will talk about Division 7A. It will be a Division 7A mini-series. In this episode today, we start with Peter Adams' explanation of the basic concept of Division 7A. And Peter will also already start looking at UPEs to corporate beneficiaries. So today is a rerun of certain parts of episode 50. Episode 50 was the first time we really looked into Division 7A and your Division 7A questions often refer back to episode 50. So here's Peter Adams about the concept of Division 7A. Well, welcome to our Division 7A series, folks. Uh, we're talking about the mechanics of Division 7A in particular. We'll explore Division 7A in the context of private company loans. Because with effect from 4 December 1997, Division 7A is the prevailing provision that serves as an integrity provision to counter against loans or payments or forgiven debts out of private companies to shareholders and associated persons. And of course, the key sanctioning effect in Division 7A is essentially to treat any loan, any payment, any forgiven debt out of a private company as an unfrank dividend in the hands of the recipient. Now, the way I like to analyse and try and identify a Division 7A risk and quantify that risk is to go through a series of questions. And by going through that series of questions, I'm able to identify and quantify uh, the extent of my Division 7A risk. So I think in our discussion today, as we talk about Division 7A and loans, We'll follow that same pathway in trying to extrapolate the key components of what triggers a risk within Division 7A. So in essence, the first question, as you would expect, would be, what is a loan for Division 7A purposes? Now, loan is specifically defined in Division 7A. And the definitional framework of loan for Division 7A purposes is that it's an advance of money 
a provision of credit, and any other form of financial accommodation. It also extends itself to say, well, if it's a payment of an amount for another person where there is some sort of express or implied obligation to repay that amount, there'll be a loan for Division 7A purposes. And anything which is in substance a loan, anything which you and I think is a loan, would be a loan for Division 7A purposes. So the scope of the definitional platform for the, for loan in the context of Division 7A is very, very wide. And of course, as we'll see in a minute, it doesn't just include loans directly to shareholders or associates of shareholders, but it also includes loans to interposed entities and in turn loans from those interposed entities to what we call the target entity, which is either the shareholder or the associate of the shareholder. But that's the definitional scope of a loan. So our first question really is, do we have a loan? And as you can see, it's a very wide ambit of what constitutes a loan for Division 7A purposes. Our second question, which follows on from whether there is an existing loan, and we normally see this quite easily if it's documented right uh, in terms of the accounts, we can see that there's a debit loans accounted for out of the company to a shareholder or an associate or some other party. And of course, if it's documented of such, that's a clear indicator that it is a loan. But the trigger point for Division 7A is as to who is the recipient of the loan. And the key recipient of the loan to trigger Division 7A would have to be a shareholder of that company out of which the loan emanates. A shareholder is, of course, someone on the member register of that company noted and recorded as a shareholder. So if that debit loan that's recorded on the balance sheet of the company has a counterparty on the other side that is a person that's a shareholder of that company, then you have a Division 7A trigger. You might say, does the person have to be a current shareholder for the loan to trigger Division 7A? No, Division 7A extends itself. If the loan is made to a person who had been a shareholder and was made to that person as a result of them having been a shareholder. So it can also apply to what we would call past shareholders. Point of note, if it is to a shareholder, you've got a Division 7A trigger. It's specifically extended to current shareholders and past shareholders only in the context where you could say that the loan was made to them in the context that they had been a shareholder. If you are able to put forward a different proposition, even though they had been a shareholder, it may not actually fall within the scope of Division 7A. The Next element of discussing what types of loans would trigger Division 7A is we now understand if we make a loan directly to a shareholder of that company, we've got a problem that we've got to deal with. The second aspect of that is what if this private company doesn't actually make a loan directly to the shareholder, but instead makes the loan to another entity who's unrelated to the shareholder? And so, therefore, that loan in itself wouldn't trigger Division 7A. But that second entity, once it receives the loan funds from the first company, then passes on that cash to the shareholder of that first company. 
Does that now trigger Division 7A? And of course, the short answer is yes, it does, because it would be so easy to circumvent the effect of Division 7A if that were not true. Yes, because it's just an interposed entity. Absolutely. It's just really a conduit for that flow of funds. And so Division 7A does attack that type of structure. And so how does it do it? Because if the loan goes directly from the first company to the shareholder, then what Division 7A does is to say because that loan went to a shareholder of that company, we'll deem that loan not to be a loan, but to be an unfranked dividend. And that's how it works mechanically. Now, you can fix that. And we'll talk about how we fix that. But that's the effect of Division 7A. But if the loan doesn't go to the shareholder directly, but instead goes to an interposed entity and thereafter ends up in the hands of the shareholder, how does Division 7A make itself work? Well, what it does, it says, we will treat the second loan from the interposed entity as a loan as if it was directly from the company to the shareholder. And that's how it makes itself work. So it treats that second loan from the interposed entity to the target shareholder as if it was a loan directly from the first primary entity to the shareholder. And so it almost creates a double fiction because Division 7A is a fictional regime. It says something that you call a loan, we won't treat as a loan. We'll treat it as a deemed dividend. Now, to make itself work in this interposed entity scenario, it needs to create a double fiction. So it needs to say the loan from the second interposed entity to the target shareholder, that loan is deemed to be a loan between the primary company and the shareholder. And that deemed loan will translate itself to a deemed dividend. So a double fiction to make itself work mechanically. But it does capture a scenario we have interposed entities. And that interposed entity can either be a company, I've used a company in my example, but it could also be a trust. So where the loan goes from the primary company to an interposed trust and from there as a secondary flow out of funds into the hands of the shareholder of the first company, we have a problem that we need to fix. Okay, And we'll talk about how we fix that a little bit later on. But that is what I call the second model of Division 7A's operation. The first model is where the loan goes directly from private company to the shareholder. The second model is where the loan goes from the private company to the interposed entity and from the interposed entity to the target shareholder. That's model two. Then we also have model three. Division 7A only has three models. And so when we look and try and identify where we have a Division 7A risk, we look at it in the context of these three models. If these three models and the elements of these three models are not present, we don't have a Division 7A problem. So we look in the context of these three models. So we've explored Model 1 and Model 2. Model 1, once again, to repeat, is where the loan went directly from a private company to the target child. Model 2 is where you had a loan first from the primary company to the interposed entity and from the interposed entity to the target shareholder. Model three is also an interposed entity type structure, but a little bit different from model two because under model two, you had two actual loans, a loans from the private company 
to the interposed entity and a second loan from the interposed entity to the shareholder of the first company. So you had two loans. That was the trigger point for Division 7A under Model 2. Under Model 3, you don't have two loans. What do you have under Model 3? Well, under Model 2, I explained earlier that your interposed entity can either be a company or it could be a trust. Under Model 3, your interposed entity can only be a trust. And so the second point of difference between Model 3 and Model 2 is that there's no actual loan between the private company and the interposed trust. What there actually is, is this relationship. The primary company is actually a beneficiary of the interposed trust. The interposed trust would declare a distribution to the corporate beneficiary, which is the primary company, but does not pass on the cash to that company. You have exactly right an unpaid present entitlement, AUP. And so this, of course, in terms of tax planning, might on the face of it seem like a very clever strategy because we're using the framework of trust taxation to get some sort of tax-advantaged outcome, which is allowed for under the law. Because under trust taxation, to shift a taxing point out of the trust, on the income of the trust, to a recipient beneficiary, the cash does not need to follow. All that needs to happen is that the trustee of that trust needs to declare a distribution to that particular beneficiary. That creates a present entitlement in the hands of the beneficiary to that income. And that's enough to shift the taxing point into the hands of the beneficiary. And so that's exactly what's happening here. The trust declares a distribution to this corporate beneficiary, the company, but doesn't pay the cash. But yet, by declaring the distribution, shifts the tax liability on the trust income to the corporate beneficiary. And of course, we know that the company tax rate at 30%, and for some companies now, 27.5%, could be a lot more concessional than the high marginal individual rates that someone might incur. So this is a useful strategy in itself, and in itself, it doesn't trigger Division 7A. But that cash that hasn't been paid to the corporate beneficiary, the company, that's still sitting in the trust, doesn't remain in the trust. What the trust then does is to pass on that cash as a loan to the shareholder of the first company, which is the corporate beneficiary, of course, of that trust. So what's happening here? Well, this is exactly what Division 7 is designed to counter. Cash that belongs to a private company has found its way into the hands of the shareholder of that company in the form of a loan coming out of the interposed trust. So in a way, the effect is almost similar to Model 2. And so this is our Model 3, where you have the combination of a UP to a corporate beneficiary and a loan of cash representing the UP out of the trust to the shareholder of that company 
triggers the Vision 7 Act. So if the loan was to the company, then it would be fine. It's yeah. only if the loan is to the shareholder. Correct. Absolutely. And so this is part of what we need to identify when we look at the private company's balance sheet. We might see on the balance sheet that there's a loan out of that private, an actual loan, out of that private company to another entity that's not a shareholder of that company, nor is it an associate of a shareholder. And so we might be inclined to say there's no Division 7 problem. But we still have to ask, where does the cash go from there? And if the cash goes from there into the hands of the shareholder of that company, we have a problem. And so we have to extend our inquiry beyond what we see perhaps on just that company's balance sheet to be able to identify whether we have a Division 7 risk. Similarly, we might have a company that has a receivable on its books, which is a UPE from a trust. And we might say if we just look at that in isolation, we don't have a problem. But we still have to ask, where's that cash that that company is entitled to? Where has it ended up? And if it's ended up in the hands of the shareholder of that private company, we still have a problem. So what we know out of these three models is that legislatively, these are the only three models that trigger the Vision 7A. Do you often see Model 3, the business is actually running through a trust and then any business profits? Yeah, that's... Um, this issue? Uh, well, more recently that has become, and I say more recently, but for a number of years, that has become quite commonplace. To use the trust as a trading vehicle, of course, use the benefit of the reduced corporate tax rate by using the company as a bucket, as it were, for distributions of trading profits from the trust. Now that in itself is not an issue. That's allowed, that's within the scope of the law. But there's a consequence for Division 7A purposes if that cash doesn't actually flow to the company. But instead, it flows to a shareholder of that company. So if we think about these three models, the model model one is once again where the loan goes directly to the shareholder. Model two is where you have an actual loan from the private company to an interposed entity and from the interposed entity another loan to a shareholder of that first private company. Model three is where the interposed entity has to be a trust, but there is no actual loan between a private company and that trust. Instead, the trust declares a distribution to the private company in the form of an unpaid present entitlement, but the cash that represents that UP, that unpaid present entitlement, is then given by the trust as a loan to the shareholder of the first company. Those are your three things that you look at to try and identify whether you have a Division 7A risk. But something that would be remiss of us not to mention is that in 2010, there was a critical development within the regulatory framework around Division 7A. Now, the legislative models for Division 7A are simply those three models as I had enunciated. But in 2010, the ATO took a particular view or interpretation on something that is aligned with Model 3. Now, if you remember, Model 3 is the one where we have an interposed trust with a UPE to a corporate beneficiary and the cash flows out of that trust to the shareholder of that first company. 
So I say to myself, well, if I declare UPE to a private company, the only Division 7A trigger point is going to be if that cash goes to a shareholder of that company. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep the cash in the trust. And if I pass it out, I'm going to make sure I don't pass it to a shareholder or an associate or a shareholder. So if I don't have that second link, I don't have a Division 7A problem. And so we believed for many years. Now remember, Division 7A came in 4 December 1997. Until 2009, when the ASIO issued a ruling, 2010-3, taxation ruling TR 2010-3, up until then, there was a common perception, not without basis, not without merit, because this is how we thought the law worked. And the ATO never challenged, challenged that as being a different proposition. But in 2010, with their ruling 2010-3, they came out with this view that even if the cash that represents the UPE in the trust is not actually paid out as a loan to the shareholder, you may still have a problem. How and why? Well, what they suggested potentially could still be a problem is that if the shareholder in the private company is not just the shareholder of the private company, but that shareholder himself or herself is also a beneficiary under that very same trust that declares the UPE to the company. If that is true, then that shareholder and the trust are what we call associates. That Division 7A applies itself to instances not just where loans go to shareholders, but where it also goes to associates. And in my example, I used a family member as an associate, a spouse. But associate as a concept actually stands a lot further than just individuals or people. It would include also a trust where the individual or associate of that individual benefits under that trust. So in fact, a beneficiary of a trust makes that beneficiary an associate of the trust and the trust and associate of that person. So where we have a scenario where the shareholder of the private company is not just shareholder of the private company, but also a beneficiary of the trust that has declared a distribution to that company, UBE, then it makes that shareholder an associate of that trust. And then we say, well, what's the UPE really? Well, the UPE is a declaration of an entitlement to the company, but that hasn't been paid to the company. How would the company normally book this entitlement? Well, it would book it as a receivable. So in effect, the company is treating it as a loan that it's making to the trust because the trust owes it that cash. And so if you, in truth, say the UPE is a loan by the private company to the trust, who is the loan to? Well, it's a loan to an associate of the shareholder. In fact, this is not a new model. The ATO suggests this is actually model one. You have a direct loan from the private company to an associate of the shareholder. And of course, you would have to then think about fixing this element of Division 7A in the same way you would normally fix it but it does create a real problem. Of course, as soon as that cash is paid to the company as a paid entitlement, 
the whole UPE concept falls away. But as long as it remains a UPE, you've got this risk. The only break in this risk is if you can say, well, the shareholder is not a beneficiary of that trust, so we don't have a problem. So the only time we can have a problem is if that cash actually comes out of the trust into the beneficiary's hands or the shareholder's hands, I should say. So it is one of those things that caused much consternation in the marketplace because it is not a change to the law itself. It's the ATO taking a different slant in its interpretation of Division 7A. And that's probably what had been happening a lot. Of course, yes, indeed, because as we explored earlier, the whole use of a corporate beneficiary became commonplace. And so the view within the ATO is, well, if the cash doesn't actually go to that company, it's really booked in the books of a company as a loan that it's making to the trust. And so if that's true, and it is actually now a loan because the cash never comes out, the company is allowing the trust to use its cash. And remember, this goes back to the definition of loan we talked up right at the beginning. We said any form of financial accommodation is a loan. So in truth, a UP in this context translates itself to a loan. And therefore, a loan being to an associate of the shareholder creates a normal Division 7A. Welcome back. So there are three Division 7A models, and that is it. In the next episode, episode 149, we will rerun Peter Adams' list of possible fixes and exceptions to Division 7A. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.